Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week Thomas Lindsay, who is an attorney and the executive director of the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund, a nonprofit law firm that has provided free legal services to over 500 local governments and nonprofit organizations since 1995. He's a cum laude graduate of Widener Law School and a three time recipient of the law school's Public Interest Law Award. He has been a finalist in the Ford Foundation's Leadership for a Changing World Award, a recipient of the Pennsylvania Farmers Union's Golden Triangle Legislative Award, co-founder of the Daniel Pennock Democracy School, now taught in 24 states across the country, which has graduated over 5,000 lawyers, activists, and municipal officials, and which assists groups to create new community campaigns, which elevate the rights of those communities over the rights claimed by corporations. Lindsay's books include Be the Change, How to Get What You Want in Your Community. He was featured in the Leonardo DiCaprio and Tree Media film, 11th Hour and We the People 2.0. He assisted the Ecuadorian Constitutional Assembly in 2008 to adopt the world's first constitution recognizing the independently enforceable rights of ecosystems. Thomas Lindsay, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Yeah, thanks for having me on, David. Uh, it's quite a bio. We can't get to all of it. Let's let's try starting with, uh, tell us about the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund. Sure. So the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund is a public interest uh, law firm that we created back in 1995. And we created it back in uh, 1995 to do something quite different than what we do today. Uh, Essentially, back then, we set ourselves up as a conventional, traditional environmental law firm. uh, And we litigated cases under the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act and did uh, permit appeals and basically everything that uh, traditional environmental lawyers do today. And then after doing that for about seven or eight years, we became very disillusioned with how environmental law is practiced. Essentially, environmental law has nothing to do with helping communities actually stop projects at the local level, but more with um, making those projects cause a little less harm when they come in the door. And with an understanding that the community itself doesn't have any authority whatsoever if the state or federal government has permitted a corporate project like a factory hog farm or a frack job or a frack wastewater injection well or toxic waste incinerator, that once the state or federal government has issued a permit for that project, that the community itself, and by community we mean municipalities, so the city, town, village, county, whatever that municipality may be, is then stripped of any authority to say no or to veto the project at the local level. So we came to grips with the fact that we have a system of law that is um, very anti-democratic when it comes to communities making decisions about what their communities are going to look like 20, 40, or 60 years in the future, and that that power increasingly has been shifted to the corporations that are proposing those projects that come into those uh, municipalities. And so the shift that we did was to give up on environmental law as really being about stopping anything in these communities. And we transitioned instead to assisting these communities to begin drafting their own laws. And these are laws that not only ban 
particular activities within those communities, like fracking or toxic waste incinerators or whatever, <clears throat> but that also take aim at the legal doctrine that uh, guarantee that the corporation has more decision-making authority than the community itself. So the laws are more than laws. They're actually challenges, direct challenges, to a system of law that elevates corporate rights above the rights of the people that live in those communities. And along the way, we've pioneered a, a legal theory, a new theory, uh, which actually has its roots in the 1800s in some ways, that communities and people within those communities have a constitutional right of local community self-government, that they have a constitutional right to govern themselves, and that includes the right to say no to these projects that, uh, that are harmful to them. And, and when you use the word community, do you mean a group of humans, or do you mean something more than that? Well, we mean both. Uh, uh, both the communities of humans as well as the biotic community, so the environmental community. And at a 30,000-foot level, the work that we do is really about redefining what community means. So when a toxic waste incinerator is siting within a community, the impacts from that incinerator are not just, on the, not just felt by the human community, the humans that live in that city, town, village, or county, but also by the natural environment itself. And so... The, the, the work that we do, I think, can loosely be described as, as self-determination. In other words, assisting uh, communities of humans to self-determine. But also a, a deeper understanding that uh, nature uh, today under Western civilized law uh, is treated as property, which means that uh, if you have a deed for a piece of property, basically you can do whatever you want to to it including destroying the ecosystems that are found on that piece of property. And so as part of that uh, quest towards self-determination that our human communities have been making, I think there's a realization that nature has, has to possess a right to self-determine as well, uh, so that rivers have a right to flow and forests have a right to exist. And I think along the way we're reclaiming in some ways what it means to be human as interconnected and dependent upon these other systems to a point where we're forcing the legal system to recognize rights for those environmental systems as well as for rights of those humans to decide what their futures look like. I, I imagine you run into people uh, around the United States and probably some listening to this program who think that it actually makes more sense to give rights to corporations than to ecosystems or future generations or a, a human right to the commons or, or anything that might protect the world around us. Uh, what's, what's your view of giving rights to corporations? Because that's the one that seems crazy to me. Yeah, so corporations have possessed certain constitutional rights for a long time in this country, all the way back uh, to the uh, mid-1800s. Some people track it even back to the early 1800s and beyond. And in fact, those corporate rights have a pedigree. Uh, they're uh, anchored back in English common law. In fact, uh, some writers like uh, Professor Adam Winkler out of UCLA has tracked it all the way back to Roman time, uh, where uh, vestiges of corporate forms can be found. So corporate rights go way back. The, the, the reason why corporate rights in our constitutional context don't make any sense uh, is because corporations are property. Uh, so I can create a corporation tomorrow and sell it to you um, uh, because the corporation is a, is a piece of property. It, it exists on paper. And because of that, giving rights or recognizing rights for corporations 
would be akin to your refrigerator having rights. Uh, and unfortunately, things having rights under the system come with a cost, which is that corporations having rights can sue you. So you can have a corporate entity as a plaintiff suing you for, or more explicitly or precisely suing a local government or a state government or a federal government for denying those uh, corporate constitutional rights. So we've always found that situation to be fairly anomalous, that it doesn't make sense under our constitutional system in which rights are intended only for natural persons, natural breathing human persons under the U.S. Constitution. But in this weird, wacky system of law that we have in the United States, uh, corporations have rights. Nature doesn't. Uh, Corporations have rights. Uh, people living in their own communities uh, don't have equivalent rights to those corporations that are attempting to use them for resource extraction or for various projects. And I, I'll also say that a lot of people track corporate rights back to a series of Supreme Court decisions in the United States. And, of course, the as I mentioned, the pedigree for corporate rights goes much further back than that. Uh, but at the same time, our U.S. Constitution made it very easy for corporations in the United States to uh, obtain those rights through the courts, because in many ways the U.S. constitutional structure itself, aside from the Bill of Rights, so when most people extol the Constitution, they're talking about the Bill of Rights, and we forget that the Bill of Rights had to be driven in by a revolution of its own, uh, by the anti-federalists who wanted to drive a Bill of Rights into the constitutional uh, construct against the wishes of uh, the Madisons and the Hamiltons and the other founding fathers. So it took a revolution itself by people to drive the Bill of Rights in. But when most people extol the Constitution, they're talking about the Bill of Rights. Unfortunately, the text of the Constitution is really what's become known as a property and commerce document, which elevates the rights of property and commerce above the rights of people, communities, and nature. And so when people say, well, how how does that make sense? It must have been an accident that corporations obtained constitutional rights like free speech and freedom of religion and freedom to associate and all the other rights under the Bill of Rights that that people have today. The answer is that it's not an exception. It's not an accident uh, that it was very easy for corporations to fit themselves into that constitutional structure because the U.S. constitutional structure is a lot about Uh, protecting property and commerce, and not so much about protecting people, communities, and nature. Although some people were property back at the time it was written. Uh, We're speaking with Thomas Lindsay, who is the executive director of the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund. Uh, Just briefly, I'm very interested in the the Constitution uh, in Ecuador and your role in that and how it's working out in the early, early years of its existence. Are ecosystems' rights being protected? Yeah, the the answer is a mixed bag, Uh, but uh, to take us back to 2007, uh, we had some of the first communities in the United States, uh, like a little place called Tamaqua Borough, which is an hour and a half uh, uh, north-west of uh, Philadelphia, uh, passed some of the first rights of nature laws in the world. So these were local laws passed by cities, towns, villages, counties uh, that uh, recognized nature as having rights. So this huge, you know, concept uh, that's paradigm changing in Western civilized law or Western uh, civilization law at this point 
that this groundbreaking concept was really uh, pioneered by local municipalities. So local governments that you might not necessarily think of as being very progressive uh, were the first ones to pioneer this new this new vantage point for the law, recognizing that ecosystems have certain rights within those municipalities. And because of that work in the United States, uh, some folks in Ecuador, including some members of the Constitutional Assembly there who were writing a new constitution, uh, saw what was happening in those small municipalities and wanted to replicate some of that work into the national constitution for Ecuador. And so we were called uh, to travel down to Ecuador to meet with the Constitutional Assembly to tell them about some of the stories about what was happening in the United States and to help them imagine what that might look like for the federal constitution. And the Ecuadorian delegate to the Constitutional Assembly decided to incorporate the rights of nature concept into the Ecuadorian constitution, passed overwhelmingly in an initiative uh, a referendum within the country and actually became the new constitution for Ecuador. And then the next step was to begin to enforce those provisions. So the Ecuadorian constitutional provisions recognize that ecosystems and nature within Ecuador have a right to exist, flourish, regenerate, uh, be restored, uh, those types of rights. And the question was, what does that look like in a court of law? And the first case that was brought under those constitutional provisions dealt with a river called the Vilcabamba River in Ecuador and uh, dealt with a lawsuit in which the river was defending itself against the uh, dumping of the construction debris into the river, which was changing its flow. And the argument was that that dumping of construction debris into the river violated the rights of the river to exist and flourish and uh, be restored and the rights, other rights that are in the Ecuadorian Constitution. And so it kind of bends our brains sometimes to think about what rights of nature, the impact is on the conventional uh, jurisprudence or judicial system that we have. But in this case, the Vilcabamba River was the plaintiff. Right. So w- when you have nature possessing rights that uh, up till now have not been seen by the courts, that you're making them visible to the courts, that the plaintiff is actually the ecosystem. And so the case was captioned Vilcabamba River versus the province of Loja, which was the local government that was dumping the construction debris in. And long story short, the judge ruled in favor of the river. It was the first uh, rights of nature case in the world uh, in, the, in which the judge ruled in, on behalf of the river. There have been other cases in Ecuador dealing with illegal gold mining, um, shark fin fishing uh, off of the Galapagos. Um, other cases that have built around those rights of uh, that are contained within the Ecuadorian Constitution, and perhaps even more exciting than that, though that's very exciting to us, is that other courts in other parts of the world, like Colombia and India, uh, have actually issued rulings that borrow from that Ecuadorian experience, ruling that the Amazon region, for example, is a legal person uh, that has a certain rights under the law. And they do so not because in India and Colombia they have those same written constitutional provisions as Ecuador, because they don't. But they're building a new body of jurisprudence completely through judge-made law that borrows from those examples from Ecuador and other places. So I think it's a very interesting time for this concept of rights of nature to be building, because it's not only building through legislation, but also building through judges, borrowing from other judges' decisions on an international level. It's it's wonderful. It's it's exciting. Um, I 
I I think I, I got in touch with you, uh, Thomas Lindsay, uh, because I, I'd been familiar to some degree with this work that you've been doing over the years, but also because I would just recently was handed something called the James River Natural Community Bill of Rights. Uh, and here I am in Virginia near the James River, and I was very curious how this came about and, and what uh, it might amount to. Can you give me part of that story? Uh, I, I can briefly to the amount that we've been involved with it, but uh, we've we've made several visits to parts of Virginia. I grew up in southwestern Virginia, and uh, just like communities across the United States in Colorado, Washington, Oregon, in different places where they're looking for new tools to do ecosystem protection, uh, there's a group of individuals uh, there uh, who are exploring using this rights of nature concept to protect the James River. Uh, and also using ecosystem rights to protect places like the Shenandoah and the Roanoke River and other uh, what we would call big-name ecosystems that may have some form of protection under the law but not the elevated form of protection that rights of nature would recognize. I mean, this is essentially about grounding uh, nature's rights in a constitutional context, which is a much higher form of protection than some of the protection already given to natural ecosystems and the environment. And, of course, as we've seen both in national forests and in state-protected areas, uh, we now have pipelines uh, being laid across those regions because those types of environmental protection measures are not strong enough to protect them from those types of invasions. Uh, we still have natural, national forests being used for all kinds of extraction activities, uh, you know, the multi-use stuff like clear-cutting. I mean, there's all kinds of ways in which the environment is being degraded. And, in fact, we're at a worse place now than we were 40 years ago when the major environmental laws were passed because by almost every major environmental statistic, things are worse now today than they were 40 years ago. So I, I think it's, it's natural that people are looking for other ways to protect those ecosystems. I think the James River has been under attack uh, for a long, long time, uh, as long as the Colorado River has been in Colorado. And there was a groundbreaking lawsuit brought uh, this past year uh, in the name of the Colorado River against the state of Colorado for bartering away the water before it even reaches the end of the Colorado River. So I think uh, I think it's, uh, it's great what they're thinking about doing in Virginia. Uh, Virginia happens to be a very tough state to move uh, local lawmaking forward in, but yep. uh, that shouldn't be a stopper for folks that want to put this new system of protection in place. And, and, and that's been an issue you've dealt with for years in Pennsylvania, correct? The, the the question of what localities can do, what powers they can claim for themselves versus the state legislature or the federal government. Absolutely. So municipalities in this country, so the municipal corporations that we think of as cities, villages, towns, and counties, which are corporations of their own. So, like in southwestern Virginia, the city of Blacksburg uh, only has certain powers that are given to it by the state legislature. So, for a long time, our municipalities have been treated as second-class citizens. And I, I think you're, you're seeing a change to some of that with the friction between uh, the sanctuary city issue now with the Trump administration uh, the marijuana stuff has always been a friction point, at least between states and the federal government, uh, as well as, in some cases, localities and the federal government. And so I, I think you're seeing some of that friction now 
starting to slowly change in the other direction. But uh, make no doubt about, you know, for the last 200 years, municipalities have been completely subordinate to state legislatures. That's why the state legislature can preempt municipalities from making law in a bunch of different areas. So, like, 20 states now have preempted municipalities from passing uh, laws dealing with genetically modified organisms or uh, genetic, uh, genetically modified seeds from being planted. So when localities have uh, begun moving in a certain direction to make law, uh, states, which are essentially controlled and manipulated by some of the largest economic interests in this country, are then used as an apparatus to tamp that down at the municipal level. Uh, we've We've come to grips with that in a number of places. Virginia is one of the worst. Virginia is one of the worst centralized states in which municipalities have almost no power uh, to operate independently of the state. And like I uh, said, I, we think that needs to change. Uh, in many places, you have a bunch of options. You can either uh, run a law through your local elected officials and try to get it passed that way. Uh, you can do initiative lawmaking. So in some cities, they have provided the power to people to circulate petitions and put something on the ballot for a vote. And in other places, including Pennsylvania, uh, as one example, the people of municipalities have the ability to rewrite their own local constitution. So they're called home rule charters. But the power is given to people to actually put on the ballot the question of writing a new constitution for the locality. And so while in some states you have a bunch of different options, uh, in places like Virginia, which are very centralized, you have almost none. And so there's a big uh, discrepancy between if you live in one state versus another, what kind of rights you have in terms of democratic lawmaking. And so we've kind of become the assistance um, ladder for communities across the United States who, first of all, want to do something because they see something wrong with the current system. And then we assist them with the vehicles of how to actually get that done. And then we come in at their request to uh, represent them in the case of a lawsuit. And lawsuits are almost automatic under the system. When a community says, we don't want a toxic waste incinerator, uh, and the company wants to put one in, and the law is on the side of the company, that generally this breeds lawsuits. And the lawsuits are filed seeking not only to overturn the law that's been passed by the locality, but also for damages against the locality. Because under the law, the corporation can seek not only to overturn the law, but also seek money damages for the amount of lost profits lost as a result of the passage of the law at the local level. So, you know, when, when I go out and give talks about this kind of stuff, people are horrified because they don't, they, they, you don't really see how the system of law operates unless you're in the midst of it. And at any one time, there aren't that many people compared to the overall population who are in the midst of fighting a giant corporation coming in to put something into their community. But the reality is that we are slaves in a much different sense than slavery in the 1800s, but we're, we're, we're enslaved to a system in which even when a majority of people within our communities come together and say we don't want that 20,000 head hog factory farm in the middle of our community, that we are powerless to actually say no to that because of the way that the legal system has been engineered over the past 150 years. So what I think is happening right now, whether it's in Virginia, around the James River, these you know, uh, 200 plus communities that have passed laws 
saying no to these projects coming into their municipalities is we're seeing a, a revolt. It's a revolt at a grassroots level, which is beginning to push its way up to say, we're not going to do that anymore. We're not going to get on our knees uh, in front of the state regulators begging and pleading agencies to do the right thing. We're not going to fight it out in courts on a ground that the corporations have chosen. We're not going to put up with uh, frack wells uh, being cited in our community anymore. And when that happens, I think that's very exciting. There's a kind of civil disobedience that is uh, that laced through this lawmaking process in which it's not just individuals lying down in front of bulldozers, it's actually whole communities who are seizing their municipal structures to then turn it upwards against the state and the corporation. And I think in a in a very real way, that's some of the more radical work that's starting to happen at the municipal level as people come to grips with a system that's destroying not only their community, but also the planet. Uh, we got just about three minutes left. Thomas Lindsay, there are already some municipalities that have done this, right, that have rewritten their constitutions, have created rights for for nature, and have stripped corporations of rights uh, within their localities. Yes, altogether, uh, over 200 municipalities in 10 states uh, so far have passed these kinds of laws that have uh, those characteristics to them. It's remarkable. Um, and and we, we mentioned Ecuador, but additional countries, Bolivia and others, are, are pursuing this same idea at the national level, right, with, with legislation. Yep. And uh, a couple years ago, we established the International Center for the Rights of Nature, headed up by uh, a woman named Mari Margill, uh, who's our associate director for the Legal Defense Fund. And she's currently working with folks in India, the Philippines, uh, Nepal, uh, basically these pockets of folks internationally who have seen the rights of nature both on paper and as practice now in Ecuador and the decisions coming out of India and Colombia, uh, in addition to those international pockets which are moving forward, constitutional amendments and national statutes. So in India, the rights of the Ganges River, for example, is the statute that we've written uh, that's now beginning to wend its way through the Indian uh, Indian Assembly and so uh, Indian legislature. And so these international pockets are moving. In the United States, tribes are now moving. Uh, tribal communities have more room to roam in terms of sovereignty than uh, some of the municipal communities that we deal with. So the Ho Chunk tribe in Wisconsin was the first to take a vote on putting uh, rights of nature uh, into their tribal constitution, a tribal constitution. And that's starting to happen in different places. Uh, in the United States with different tribes that we've been asked to help with. And, of course, indigenous peoples have treated uh, nature as something other than property for thousands of years. Uh, and it's just now that um, our culture is catching up with the need for that uh, rights-based uh, kind of approach to ecosystem protection. Indeed. Um, 60 seconds left. How can people get involved, learn more, uh, find out uh, how to make this happen in their locality? Uh, so best way is to access our webpage, uh, which is at uh, celdef.org. That uh, stands for the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund.org. And if their interest is in the rights of nature, uh, we have a rights of nature workshop that we do for communities. Um, there's a, some of the ones that we've done in Virginia. 
and uh, if the interest is in community self-determination for saying no to certain projects like pipelines and those types of things, uh, we do a three-day, uh, two-day training called Democracy Schools, uh, and um, attendees include lawyers and municipal officials, community leaders, and we actually go through a process of teaching history and then coming up to the present day, looking at strategy, language, ordinances, those types of things. So it depends on how people want to plug in, but the webpage is the best way. Wonderful, wonderful work. Thank you for taking the time to come on Talk Nation Radio. Thomas Lindsay is the executive director of the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund. Thanks for coming on the program. Yeah, thanks for having me, David. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, Please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.